They've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome, welcome to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, the 23rd day of February 2024. We will begin with prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of the faithful and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that in the same spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus Dominus Deus Sabaoth, Pleni sunt celi et terra, gloria tua, Hosanna in excelsis. Benedictus qui veni to nomine Domini, Hosanna in excelsis. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, welcome, welcome to Bible with the Barbers, and I hope you've all had a chance to share, uh, have gotten used to the new time here on Friday at 10 a.m., and you've shared this with all your friends and family, and let everybody know, uh, you're encouraging everybody that you meet to download that app and get Virgin Most Powerful Radio on their cell phones, but also to listen on our website. Uh, anyone who wants to donate can call 877-526-2151. So today I want to talk a little bit about something in the Old Testament. And it's interesting. Oftentimes people find that there are certain books of the Old Testament they want to avoid. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Oh, those have so many details. They have so many regulations. They have so many rules. They have so many. This is just so um, difficult to read. Well, it's interesting. The church during Lent here, um, the first, as a matter of fact, it was Monday this week. This is the, the first full week of Lent. And on Monday this week, the reading was from Le- Leviticus 19. Now, they don't read the whole thing, but they lead, it's Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2, and then 11 through 18. So I'll read that part to you, and then I want to comment a little bit about it. And I'm going to point something out about um, whether or not this is important and still applies. So, a reading from the book of Leviticus. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the whole assembly of Israel and tell them, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall not steal. You shall not lie or speak falsely to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, thus profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not defraud or rob your neighbor. You shall not withhold overnight the wages of your day laborer. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not act dishonestly in rendering judgment. Show neither partiality to the weak nor deference to the mighty, but judge your fellow men justly. You shall not go about spreading slander among your kin, nor shall you stand by idly when your neighbor's life is at stake. 
I am the Lord. You shall not bear hatred for your brother in your heart. Though you may have to reprove him, do not incur sin because of him. Take no revenge and cherish no grudge against your fellow countrymen. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And um, so what does God say in the beginning of this passage to Moses? He says, the whole assembly of this children of Israel to be told, be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. Okay. So God is calling us. Okay to something beyond what we experience on in this world. The holiness asked for of the Israelites, it's much more than merely ritual holiness, okay? This is not just a, you know, a ritual thing. It's not an external thing. Oftentimes we get attached to rituals. We get attached to the external practice of our religion. And sometimes we can even make that a type of idolatry. We're loving God for the gifts he gives, and not for who he is. God gives us many gracious gifts. He's just, he abounds. I mean, his graciousness towards us abounds. But do we love God for God's sake? Now, what if he were to take all of that away? Would we still love him? Or are we going to complain and whine and say, oh, you know, this is so hard. I can't do this. And, you know, I say that every day sometimes. It's like, Lord, uh, life, is, life is hard. And it's okay to tell the Lord it's hard. But are we going to give up our faith in him? Are we going to complain against him to the point where we're going to be angry at God? And this happens. You know, the story, Betty Brennan's story years ago, Betty Brennan was a Catholic and she grew up a Catholic and, and she and her husband had a child that was hydrocephalic and it was a very difficult delivery, very painful. And then the baby lived for about two years, but eventually the baby died. And in that two years, Betty let her heart grow hard because of the suffering and she let her heart grow hard. And at the funeral, after the funeral, she said, you know, I went out of the church, but I had to come back in the church to get something. And I looked at the crucifix and I shook my fist and I said, I'm going to get even with you. She said, I didn't know what I was saying, but she, well, she was a cellist and she hadn't been playing the cello for a couple of years because she'd been in an orchestra before, but she was busy with this little baby that was very ill. And so she went back to playing in the orchestra. Well, there was an elderly man in the orchestra who befriended him. He was a psychologist. And he allowed her to talk about her hatred for God. And Betty put it this way. She said, I didn't realize that by this doing this, I was receiving a negative inner healing. So she found a kind of peace, but it was a negative peace. And it turns out that this man was actually a high priest, a Satanist high priest. And she discovers this, but when she discovers it, she cannot break the tie with him because the emotional tie is so great. So she unwittingly got pulled into Satanism because of her hatred for God. And this, so beware of you, you know, if people are allowing you to talk about your hatred for God. Beware. God is good and he desires only our good. 
Be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He is calling us to supernatural holiness. He's calling us to something that is beyond this world. And yes, he's calling to us to a forgiveness, an openness of heart, a heart. As Trez of Lezu said, allow yourself a heart that will break. I remember reading that and I was like, oh, that's hard. Allow myself a heart that will break and don't get bitter about it and take a deep breath and say, yes, Lord, you said yes to the cross, Jesus. So I'll say yes. And this hurts and it's hard and it's difficult to bear, but I will do this, Lord, because you asked me to do this. Whatever happens in our life, it may not be God's active will, but it can't happen if he doesn't allow it. So if he's allowing it to happen, he has a greater good intended to bring out of it. So he allowed Betty to have this child and he never intended for her to turn her hatred on God, but she did. Unwittingly, she's pulled into Satanism and by the grace of God, in the mercy of God, through an act of charity, she eventually is delivered from the bonds of Satan. And we have Betty Brennan's story. Um, she she uh, returned to the sacraments. Betty Brennan talks about her story. To the, she was in the charismatic renewal, and, and essentially, eventually, eventually God blessed her with the gift of being able to pray with people, and um, God's healing was brought about through those prayers. But it was God's healing. As a matter of fact, at one point, she went to pray with a group of people after her conversion, her reconversion to the faith and her full deliverance from Satanism. And, and she went to pray with this. And there was, she was after mass, there was a mass. And then after mass, uh, they were supposed to have this prayer service and she was supposed to pray over people. And she watched people come up to Holy Communion during that mass. And at the end of mass, Betty got up there and she said, I cannot pray with you people and I cannot pray over you people. I am only a human being. I cannot heal anyone. You came to Holy Communion and you received the Lord of life, the divine physician, the healer of all ill. And you didn't even recognize him. Do we recognize Jesus in the Eucharist? Do we reverence him and worship him? You know, it's interesting. I was reflecting at this mass, at mass this morning. Oftentimes in parishes now, nobody kneels for the Ecce Agnus Day. When the priest holds up the host before Holy Communion and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are called to the wedding feast, the supper of the Lamb. He's, Jesus is being held up for adoration and people are standing. For a thousand years in the Latin rite of the Roman Catholic Church, the tradition has been to kneel in adoration. Now, yes, in the Eastern churches, in the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church, there are many of them that stand in adoration. But in the 10 hundreds, there was an archpriest, Baron Garius, who doubted the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I hear that music. You're going to have to stay tuned if you want to hear the rest of this story and more about Leviticus and being holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And what does this mean? 
What is God calling us to? Please remember to invite your friends and family to join us. Let other people know. Send out email blasts to all your friends. And if you can, Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome, welcome back to Bible with the Barber. (laughs) Terry's not with me in studio. Please do share this with all your friends and family and let people know that we have a Bible study here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We have other great shows, too, and please tune in and listen to them. Um, I always do this, and then I draw a blank, right? Jesus 911 and the Terry and Jesse show, and then we have the Bishop. We still have Bishop Strickland on, and we still have uh, Matthew Arnold, and um, I'm terrible with names here. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, look on our website virginmostpowerfulradio.org and look at our shows and see what we still have. We've had to readjust some things this year uh, to meet the financial needs. But anyway, so we're back here to Leviticus 19 and we're thinking about the Lord is holy. And I was talking about Betty Brennan and her um, falling away from the faith and how that happened by allowing herself to grow angry with God over some struggles in her life over a trial and then being brought back to God through an act of charity. And then the Eucharist, and how does this tie in? Well, you see, in the Catholic Church, we have many rites. I think there are 22 rites in the Catholic Church. And in many of the Eastern rites, it's been customary throughout their history to stand during um, the, the Mass, most of the Mass, including the consecration and including at communion time. And But they realize they're standing in adoration. But also for them, uh, for certain Eastern rites, an act of adoration is not a bow from of the head. It's a bow from the waist where you take your hand and put your hand palm up toward the sky and touch the back of your hand to the ground. That's the bow of adoration in the Eastern churches. So if you're going to do a bow of adoration in imitation of our Eastern brethren and in union with our Eastern brethren, then you need to bow from your waist and touch the back of your hand to the ground. All right. It became the custom in the Western Rite, the Latin Rite, which is the largest rite in the church, okay, to kneel in adoration of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament in response to the heresy of Berengarius. And Berengarius began to doubt now the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and he was teaching this. Now he recanted, okay, but unfortunately, in that. but he said the cat was already out of the bag. And some people never got the memo that, no, this isn't what the church teaches. And, and so oftentimes that, that, that those false teachings still creep into the catechesis and they get carried on, unfortunately, throughout the years. But in response to that, Francis of Assisi told his brothers that, all right, since there's some doubt about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, whenever we see Jesus in the Eucharist, we will kneel on both knees, to show that we adore him. And it became the custom in the Latin rite to kneel in adoration, to kneel in adoration. And it's something to think about. Are we truly adoring Jesus in the Blessed Bible? Do we really believe that this is the Lord God, Emmanuel, God with us? Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And in this 
this reading here for Leviticus, and I didn't read the church. It's funny because it gives you Leviticus 19, 1 through 2, and then 11 through 18. It doesn't give you the whole reading of that chapter. And there are other very important things in there. For instance, about, um, you know, your, your fa- honor your father and mother. And um, oh, every one of you should revere his father and mother, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourself molten gods. I am the Lord your God. So we worship God and we give him worship alone. Now we venerate the saints, okay? We can venerate the saints, but we don't worship the saints. And, but the Lord tells us how. How are we to imitate his holiness? And in this particular passage, it, it, the church doesn't have that part about, you know, honor your father and your mother and keep my Sabbath holy. But it does go on to say, you shall not steal. You shall not lie or speak falsely to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, thus profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. So we're not supposed to tell lies and we're not supposed to speak falsely. Now, a lot of people have this idea, well, it's just a little white lie, you know, and you, you may never do an evil so that good will come of it. Please get this straight. This is the Catholic church teaching. This is in the catechism, the Catholic church, by the way, you may never do an evil so that good will come of it. So what is a lie? A lie is to tell us false what you know to be true or to tell us true what you know to be false. It's to be duplicitous and not straightforward. Now, you can exercise a mental reservation. You don't have to answer a question, okay? Or you could reserve a part of an answer if, that, if giving the whole answer is going to cause danger to someone else. But you can't outright lie without sinning. Now, granted, circumstances can mitigate the weight of that sin. For instance... And this was the example that was always used that I know of. Well, what if you were in, in, in uh, Europe during World War II and you were hiding Jews in your house and the Nazis came to the door and said, are there any Jews in this house? Wouldn't you say no? Well, if there weren't any Jews in my house, I'd say no. And it, it, if you've ever read Corey Ten Boom, she read, wrote Tramp for the Lord. And she also wrote The Hiding Place. The Ten Booms hid Jews in their home. And Corey and um, her sister, Betsy, and her father were eventually taken to a concentration camp. Her father died very soon. Betsy died. Corey lived through it. And then after the war, Corey went about in Germany preaching, we have to forgive. Even what the Nazis did, we have to forgive them. But um, they had a cousin who really, really lived by this. Never speak falsely. And one day they were having dinner in her house with the Jews who were hiding in her house and the Nazis came in, they just, choom. and then they said, how many are these people Jewish? And she said, yes. And her family and everybody was like, how could you do that? They're going to take them and kill them. And she said, no, they're going to be okay. Jesus said not to lie. He will protect those people because I am faithful to him. And he did. Those people didn't get sent to a consecration camp. They got released by the grace of God Because she was true to her conscience, she didn't violate her conscience. And that's a hard truth, okay? But that's the holiness that God calls us to, to live the hard truth, 
to live, to do the hard thing, to tell people that, you know what, as Ben Shapiro says, what universe are you living in that you think parents have a right to kill their children? Induced abortion, whether it's surgically induced or chemically induced, to deliberately try to kill an innocent child just because they're inconvenient is a grave moral evil. It's a grave moral evil. It's a violation of the child's rights. It's a violation of the mother. It's a violation of every mother in the world and of all motherhood and fatherhood. It's a violation of the father. It, and it destroys society. When you attack the family and start tearing down the family, that's why the first commandment, you know, you have the first three commandments, they apply to God. I am the Lord your God. Have no strange gods before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. And what's the first commandment that applies to our neighbor? Honor thy father and thy mother. Why? Because the family was set up by God to be the image of God in this world, the image of the Trinity. The family was set up to be a living image of the inner life of God himself. The family, a husband, a wife, and the children that God blesses them with. And God may or may not bless you with children, but you don't deliberately thwart the possibility of children coming into the world. And this is God's law. We don't do, we don't separate what God has joined together. And what did God join together? He joined love and life together in marriage. So every married couple, and this is what the church has always taught, is to be open to the possibility of life. So that's why you can't use contraceptives in your marriage. Because contraception, by its nature, is intrinsically evil. Intrinsic means that by the nature of the thing, it is evil. Well, what is the nature of contraception? It is to divide what God joined together. God joined love and life together in marriage, as Bishop Sheen explained. So when you divide them, you're dividing what God joined together. That's evil. You're rejecting what God made. That's evil. And so the use of contraceptives in marriage is wrong. It's morally evil. And so is the use of killing innocent children through induced abortion, surgically or chemically, and oftentimes, by the way, contraceptives, that certain pills that you take or um, spermicides or whatever, they're abortifacient in nature. IUDs are abortifacient in nature. They cause spontaneous abortions. But that's not the reason contraception is intrinsically evil. It's intrinsically evil because... God said that every child is a blessing. Children are a gift from the Lord, a blessing, the fruit of the womb, like the arrows in the quiver of a warrior. Oh, the happiness of the man who has filled his quiver with these arrows. Is it difficult to raise a big family? Absolutely. Is it challenging to raise a big family? Absolutely. And by the way, all you mothers out there, please go to La Lecha League and learn how to nurse your children ecologically nurse the children. Nursing can naturally space the baby so that you're not having a baby every year. Okay, now some mothers can't nurse their babies. But every child has needs. And that's why God allows for the, the, the spacing of children. If, for instance, 
some mothers don't produce milk. So then you wait until the baby is two years old and you can use natural family planning to space the children because having a baby every single year can deprive the baby of certain emotional needs that the baby has. And it can cause them serious problems later in life. I'm not, not advocating for people to, to, to limit their family size deliberately. And, and if people are, by the way, if you choose, you say, okay, well, I'm only going to have four children. And then once you have four children, then you use natural family planning uh, to, to not have more children. Then that's become, you're using it with a contraceptive mentality now. You're using a legitimate means because you're using what God has made but you're using it with an illegitimate attitude. We're not supposed to limit our family size. We're not supposed to set a number. This is how many children we're going to have. And it's like, no, Lord, what, are, what do you want to send? Are you open to life? I remember once a, a young woman said to me, she wasn't a woman at the time. She was actually in grammar school. And, and she, you know, her parents only had four children. And people would make snide remarks to her like, oh, I thought your mother and father were good Catholics. And they only have four children. And it's like, well, um, you know, God doesn't bless everybody with a big family, honey. He really doesn't. It doesn't happen that way. I hear that music. Um, don't go away. We'll be back with more. We're not done with Leviticus here yet. So um, have everybody join us. You're listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. If you want to make a donation, call 877-526-2151. And thank you for joining us. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Well, if you have a question or comment, please write them on the app and send them in, and I'll try and answer those as soon as I get to them. Um, and I would love to. You can't, you can't call in live because this show is pre-recorded. But thank you for listening, and, and do pass it on. And, and if you do have questions and comments, please... I'm more than happy to try and answer, especially your biblical questions. That's my, that's my expertise, as it were. Expertise is not, I'm not, a, I'm not much of an expert. But you know what? I love the Bible, and I love God's Word. And I know that God's Word is faithful and true and has the power to change me and you. So why am I talking about you shall not steal, you shall not lie or you know, uh, speak falsely to one another, um, you shall not swear falsely by my name, when... Why am I talking about contraception and um, and and marriage and family and abortion? Well, you know it's interesting. When you you can lie with your body with your actions, okay? And when a couple uses contraceptives in their marriage or resorts to abortion, they're lying to one another because in marriage you give yourself totally to your spouse as a gift. Everything about you is not, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to your spouse and vice versa. But in contraceptive relations in marriage, when you use contraceptives, you're saying to one another, you can have everything but my fertility. I don't give that to you. I'm reserving that for myself and I'm going to control it. And you're also telling God. It's interesting because Dietrich von Hildebrand argued that contraception is primarily a sin against the first commandment. Because the person you've cut out of your life is the most important is God. Read Bishop Sheen's Three to Get Married. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Most Holy Trinity, they should, that God, that we should worship, that we should be holy. And we're cutting them out of our marriage by saying, we're not going to have children. We're going to control that. 
And it's interesting. Mr. Engineer made a very good point to me um, while I was uh, on the break here. And that is that the relationship between bulimia and the use of contraception. What? What's the relationship? Well, here's, here's the relationship. Bulimia is what? You eat the food for the pleasure of eating, but then you, re- you get rid of it, right? Because you don't want to gain any weight. You don't want any nourishment from the food. So you reject the food after you've eaten it, but you're eating just for the pleasure. What is contraception? Enjoying the pleasure of conjugal relations and rejecting the fruit, rejecting the child. And is there, is there a connection? Absolutely. It's interesting. We had a good priest friend of ours point out that, you know, why was it that an entire generation of nominal Catholics, by the way, Humanae Vitae was published before Vatican II was implemented. Why did Pope Paul VI have to write it? And why did an entire generation of nominal Catholics reject Humanae Vitae out of hand without reading it? It wasn't because of Vatican II, honey. It was because they had bought into the pleasure culture. They already believed, and as St. Augustine would say, they had already begun to live debauchery. What is debauchery? When you make the means an end in and of itself. The pleasure of sexuality, the pleasure of eating is to encourage us to have children and to eat. If eating wasn't pleasurable, you wouldn't eat. If sex wasn't pleasurable, you wouldn't have children. People wouldn't do it. They would just say, you know, if something's not pleasant, we avoid it. It's pleasurable as an encouragement, but to be used in the proper way. And when you start making the pleasure an end in and of itself, when you develop a a theology of pleasure, that's debauchery. That's what St. Augustine said, because now you've made the means an end in and of itself. No, the end of of, of sexual intercourse in marriage, the end of the conjugal relation is the union and good of the spouses and offspring. Children and the union and good of the spouses to help the spouses to channel their sexual energies in a way that is chaste. Yes, you do have to live chastely within marriage. Perfect, perfect fidelity, okay? And the same as eating. The purpose of eating is not the pleasure. Although we live in a society where we have what? We have calories. calories, calorie-less foods. We have drinks that are calorie-less and have no nutrients in them and don't even hydrate us. Diet drinks, you know, they they don't hydrate us and they don't nourish us. And even, even the alcoholic beverages. So we're eating and drinking just for the pleasure of it. And it's not nourishing us. As a matter of fact, the fathers, some of the fathers of the church took a very dim view even of making pastries. <laughs> you know, it's okay in moderation. But you know what? It's never okay to commit gluttony. It's always a sin, even on Thanksgiving and Easter and Christmas. It's always a sin to be eating too much candy. You know, if, if we're eating to the point of making ourselves sick, even, even not even necessarily that point, it's wrong. By the way, getting drunk is a sin. If you have been drunk, if you have been intoxicated, go to confession. That's a serious moral evil. And if you did it on purpose, knowing that it was a serious moral evil and you freely chose it, 
that's a mortal sin. Okay. Go to confession, even if you didn't do it on purpose. Some people have this problem where, you know, they start drinking when they're young and they get this bad habit. And then they get to the point where all they have to do is drink one beer and they get a little bit tipsy. They start losing control of their faculties. We are never supposed to set, to surrender our rational faculties to a substance or to to anyone other than to God. Okay? We are supposed to be reasonable creatures in all situations. Okay? So, yes, to use the marriage act without being open to children is to lie. So you're not supposed to speak falsely even with your bodies. Then it goes on to, you shall not defraud or rob your neighbor. You shall not withhold overnight the wages of your labor. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Now, the social teachings of the church, and yes, the Catholic Church does have social teachings, and she always has. Rerum Novarum, Quadragesimo Anno. I can't remember all the social, but there are several social um, encyclicals where the church is showing us in other words, how are we supposed to live in society in relation to the people around us? The social teaching of the church, which is part of moral theology and is based on revelation and on reason enlightened by faith, enlightened by faith. Yeah, we have our reason. We need to be have it enlightened by faith in some instances in order for us to really live as Christians is summed up on the subject of the wage by the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Thus, a just wage is a legitimate fruit of work. To refuse or withhold it can be a grave injustice. Um, Leviticus 19, 13, Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15, and the letter of James 5, 4. In determining fair pay, both the needs and the contributions of each person must be taken into account. Remuneration for work should guarantee man the opportunity to provide a dignified livelihood for himself and his family on the material, social, cultural, and spiritual level. Taking into account the role of, and productivity of each, the state of the business, and the common good. Gaudium et Spes, 67. Agreement between the parties is not sufficient to justify morally the amount to be received in wages. Okay, agreement between the parties is not sufficient to justify morally the amount between the parties. That's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2434. What's interesting is that can go both ways. You're not paying the laborer what he should be getting in order to support his family, to provide for his family a livelihood um, on the material, social, cultural, and spiritual level, okay? At the same time, you shouldn't be paying someone so much that you're putting an unbearable burden on the back of someone else. For instance, when a certain company in California was going bankrupt, this was back in the 1990s, I believe, and so they applied to the state for aid. It was a very large company. And the top executive of that company took $17 million when the company is supposedly going bankrupt. 
And then the company and then the company was bailed out by the state. Well, to say that the company was bailed out by the state is to say what? The taxpayers bailed the company out. While one man makes off with $17 million, you don't need $17 million, honey. That was unjust. Even if it was agreed upon, that was unjust. And it was really unjust because you're stealing from all of your customers, who, by the way, are locked into you and don't have a choice because they have to buy your product. It was that type of a product. It was a utility. So that's un- that too is unjust. Those are the kind of things that Christians are supposed to fight and say, no, this can't be done. This is wrong. And no, the state isn't going to bail you out. You need to go belly up and that man needs to go to jail or pay back everything that he stole because he stole that from his customers. And so the price of the utility goes up and the taxes goes up and people get priced out of homes and their family has no place to live. Okay. These things are important before God. God, it matters to him. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor in righteousness. You shall not go up and down as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand forth against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Justice is a moral virtue that consists in the constant and firm will to give their due to God and neighbor. Justice towards God is called the virtue of religion. What do we owe God? We owe God the worship that is his due. I am the Lord your God. You shall have not strange gods before me. I hear that music again. So I'm having a great time. I hope you're enjoying this Bible study. I love this. This is God's holy word. It still applies to us today. Please get your family and friends to join us. If you want to make a donation, 877-526-2151. And if you have any questions, write them in on the app. Now back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Well, they say time flies when you're having a great time. So I must be having a great time because time has flown. And I think we're on our last section here of the show today. So thank you for joining us. I want to thank all the radio stations that pick us up. It really means a lot. And all of those of you who listen on the radio, please, you know, look at our website, look at our app. Remember to support your local radio stations. And if you can, support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. But support us with your prayers and your sacrifices. We really need that. And especially in our country right now, we really need to turn back to the Lord and stop offending him. Uh, in, in 1917, when our Blessed Mother appeared to the children at Fatima, she said, stop offending God, who is already too much offended. And the 20th century just seemed to get worse and worse and worse. So we really need to turn back to the Lord our God and be holy for God our Lord is holy. And so in you know, we're talking about justice and um, in justice toward God is the virtue of religion. We give to God what is his due. And everything that we are and have comes from God as a gift. So it belongs to him. We belong to him. We should give ourselves back to God as a do. Don't be afraid to give yourself to God. Young people, don't be afraid that God, you know, it's like, oh, well, I don't want to give myself fully to God. I don't want to pray too much because I might have to go into the convent. I might have to. No, God calls people to the vocation he calls them to. He calls people to holy marriage and family life. He calls people to religious life. He calls people young men to be priests. He calls young women to be religious sisters. And sometimes he calls 
people to be um, consecrated lay people who serve the church in secular institutes or ecclesial families of consecrated life. And sometimes there are some people who are just called to be single people so that they're free to serve within the church. Okay. Find that, that area of service. And you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, if you think God's calling you to marriage, somebody once said, if you haven't found your spouse yet, don't be looking for a spouse, start running after God. And after a while, look around and see who's running beside you. So justice toward men disposes one to respect the rights of each and to establish in human relationships the harmony that promotes equity, not equality, equity, according to each one's need. With regard to the persons and to the common good, the just man, often mentioned in sacred scripture, is distinguished by habitual right thinking and uprightness of his conduct toward his neighbor. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Leviticus 19.15, Book of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1807. And then this passage goes on, and I think this is so, so very important for all of us to listen to and really take to heart. You shall bear no hatred for your brother in your heart. Though you may have to reprove him, do not incur sin because of him. Take no revenge and cherish no grudge against your fellow countrymen. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And Jesus will repeat that in the New Testament. You know, what are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he will add to that, love one another as I have loved you. But you shall bear no hatred for your brother in your heart. If someone has hurt you or a family member or is hurting you continuously and a family member, pray for them every day. Just pray three Hail Marys and say, Lord, heal my heart, touch my heart, to be open to have a merciful heart and and touch this person to understand that their, their actions are hurtful. They're hurting people every day. And in so doing, they're actually hurting themselves. You know, the idea that we can go through life hurting other people and not be hurting ourselves, it's ridiculous. When you cut people out of your life because you don't need their negative energy in your life, well, maybe what you don't need is your own self-pity and your own ego. You know, we all have this tendency to feel sorry for ourselves and, and to think everybody's picking on us and everybody's out to get me and we need to stop it. We need to to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Where would I be, Lord, without your mercy? Excuse me. Sorry about that. I still have a little bit of that residual cough from that, whatever that virus was, it's a... You're not sick anymore, but the symptoms hang on. It's all good. So we want to be merciful as the Lord our God is merciful. He's merciful to us. So we want to pray for the grace to be able to forgive. We have to learn how to do this. And this is what, you know, Corey Ten Boom, after the war, she went around and she preached forgiveness. We have to forgive the Nazis. We have to forgive them. And one night after she'd preached this sermon on forgiveness, this man walked up to her. And she said, I recognized him. He'd been a guard at the prison camp where I was in prison. 
and everything in me wanted to turn away from this man. I was just like, oh, no, not him. And she said, he looked at me and he said, you know, I was a guard at one of the prison camps. Can God forgive me? And she had to deny herself in that moment. She said, if I turned away from him, I knew that everything I had just said was meaningless. And I reached my hand out and I said, as God forgives you, I also forgive you. Yes, God can forgive you. And the story Bishop Sheen tells of a, a woman who was a Jewish convert to the Christianity, but she and her husband had a friend who was actually a Nazi. And the friend came to visit and the woman wasn't, she was resting in her room when the man came and he was visiting with the husband and, he, and the husband said, well, the husband was trying to convince him that he needed to accept the mercy of God, that God could be merciful to him. And he's like, look, I, I've killed so many people. God couldn't have mercy on me. I, I'm lost. And, and he said, no, really, God could. And he said, so for the husband said, look, have you been to this village? Yes. Did you kill any Jews there? Yeah, I killed everybody there. And he said, okay, my wife didn't hear this conversation. I'm going to call her in. So he calls his wife in. His wife comes in and he said, I want you to meet the man who killed your mother and father, your brothers and sisters, all of your relatives. And the woman looked at him and she hugged him and she said, as Jesus forgives you, I forgive you. And the man broke down. And again, yes, if we can learn to forgive, then others, even if they've done heinous crimes, can learn to for, to, to accept God's mercy. And this is what brings healing. Love your neighbor as yourself. God loves us. He loves us not because of what we do. He loves us because of who we are. And who are we? We are his dearly beloved children. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will later be has not yet come to light, John says in his first letter. Because when we see him, we will be like him. We will see him face to face and we will be like him. So we are to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. We are called to a supernatural finality. We are called to leave behind all the encumbrances of this world, all of the attachments to this world, all of our pleasure seeking in order to pursue God and union with God. And we can do that by serving our neighbor and loving our neighbor. So ask for the grace to be able to forgive those who have hurt you and hurt your family members and who may continue to be hurting you and your family members. Pray for them. There's always hope. People can change. Men change every single day. You know, there was a, a man by the name of uh, Clinton Duffy. He was the warden at San Quentin. And he came to San Quentin. There was a man named Bill Sands who was a prisoner there at San Quentin at the time that Duffy became the warden. And Bill Sands said that when Duffy came, Bill had had, before Duffy came, Bill had had every bone in his body broken at least once by the guards at San Quentin. And Duffy came and that all stopped because Duffy believed in reforming men. And there's a, there's a, a book called The San Quentin Story. It's by Warden Clinton Duffy. And he talks in there about his method. But he introduced these men to God and to God's mercy. And Bill Sands was reformed. And um, he changed. And he actually did get out of prison eventually. You have to get the, the, the um, you can look up Bill Sands and see if you can find his story online. I first heard an audio tape of his, of this, of his story when I was in junior high. I was taking a summer school class in math at a public school. 
And the the math teacher played the story for played the the tape for us. I heard it again as a, as an adult when I was working with Terry. Someone sent us Bill Sands' story. Um, it's just a fascinating story. But but the reality of when a man truly believes in the dignity of the human person and treats other men with dignity, even men who have committed heinous crimes, men in prison who are still acting like animals, they change. And men did change under Clinton Duffy. They changed. They became men. And some of them became God-fearing men, holy men, actually, I would dare to say. But they learned about forgiveness and accepting the forgiveness of God and forgiving others who had hurt them. Bill Sands had to forgive his mother and father. His mother and father had divorced when he was very young. And then one time in junior high, he came home late. His mother had custody of him. He came home late for school. She was trimming the rose bushes, and she took a rose stick that was quite large with very large thorns, and she beat him with it till he bled. And so when he was a teenager, he tried, his father wouldn't pay any attention to him. So he tried to get his father's attention. His father was a judge. He committed a petty crime. His father wanted to show how impartial he could be. So what did he do? He threw the book at his son. He gave him the hardest possible punishment for the crime he had committed. That wasn't impartiality. That was just unjust. It was just unjust. And Bill Sands decided, well, my mother doesn't care about me. My father doesn't care about me. Nobody cares. So why should I care? So he turned to a life of crime and ended up in San Quentin. Suffered a lot for it, but eventually he found out that somebody does care. Somebody does care. God cares. And you have a dignity as a human person, made in God's image as a person to be loved. As a child of God, a brother and sister of Christ, a temple of the Holy Spirit, an heir to the kingdom of heaven, and God loves us. And he wants us to love one another. And yes, he even wants us to forgive those who hurt us, those who hurt our family members, even you know people who have commit crimes against our family. He wants us to forgive. And in that forgiveness, we experience the mercy of God as well. God is merciful to all of us. We're all sinners. Remember the publican and the Pharisee, and they go up to the temple, and the Pharisee, oh, Lord, I'm so great. You know, it's like the guy who sings, oh, Lord, it's so hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. You know, and the publican stands in the back, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And who went home justified? Not the Pharisee. It was the publican. The man who came before God and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. Be merciful. So, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Please help me to forgive all those who have injured me and help me help all those who have, I have injured to forgive me. I want to forgive all those who I have injured. And I want all those who, you know, I want to, those who I have injured to forgive me. But I also forgive all those who have been here. So, join us again next week on Bible of the Barbers. Thank you to all of those who support us. Our radio station is picking up. Our social media networks are picking up. And we'll be back again, God willing, next week. <laughs>